Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Cardinal Blaise J. Supich, the Archbishop Bishop of Chicago, today strongly supported the need for immediate, effective gun control measures. He made the statement alongside Pope Francis, reports NPR. Supich wrote on Twitter in part, quote, The right to bear arms will never be more important than human life. Our children have rights too, and our elected officials have a moral duty to protect them. Meanwhile, Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call, a Democrat, is calling on the Republican-controlled legislature to take up gun safety measures. That includes universal background checks for gun buyers and a ban on so-called ghost guns, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. In 2019, early on in his term, Governor Tony Evers called his first special session, urging legislators to approve universal background checks and extreme risk protection orders, better known as red flag laws. In April of this year, Evers vetoed legislation that would have allowed concealed carry licensees to bring guns in their vehicles on school grounds. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that the owners of a controversial transmission line being built in southern Wisconsin now expect the project cost to increase due to rising material costs and ongoing legal challenges. The 345-kilovolt Cardinal Hickory Creek transmission line would run more than 100 miles from Dane County to Dubuque County in Iowa. The the project's co-owners told the Wisconsin Public Service Commission on Friday that they expect the cost to build the $492 million power line to grow by more than 10% of the initial price tag. Increased costs will be paid by ratepayers. In March, the utilities appealed a federal judge's decision that blocked the project's crossing through the Upper Mississippi River National Wildlife Refuge. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel is reporting that Robert Spindell, one of three Republican members of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, is a candidate to chair the panel despite having filed affidavits to Congress falsely claiming to be an elector for Donald Trump. The commission is evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. Ann Jacobs, a Democratic attorney from Milwaukee, is currently chairing the panel. To be elected, Spindell must receive at least one vote from a Democratic member of the commission. In a recent interview, Spindell acknowledged he may have trouble getting a Democratic vote. New documents show former Republican Governor Scott Walker encouraged an appointee not to give up his position when his term was up to thwart Governor Tony Evers' agenda, writes the Wisconsin State Journal. Fred Prynne was appointed by Walker to the Natural Resources Board in 2015 and has refused to step down since his term ended in May 2021. Recovered text messages show Prynne sought advice from the former governor in November 2020, wondering if Prynne should step down. Walker responded, quote, If possible, stay on. Any voices that can counter their racial view of the world are good. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that spring enrollment data from the University of Wisconsin system showed continued declines. Average enrollment among all four-year universities was down 1.4%, while the decline across the state's two-year campuses dropped 8.6%. 
Enrollment at the UW System's two-year campuses has trended downward with other two-year campuses nationwide for the past two years. UW-Platteville's Richland campus saw overall enrollment drop to 51 students this spring. The 1,200-year-old canoe that was found in Lake Mendota in early November has been digitally scanned in 3D before it will have to wait two years in a long-term preservation process in a specialized tank, as reported in the Wisconsin State Journal. The work canoe was found in 27 feet of water, about 100 yards off the Shorewood Hills shoreline. It's estimated to be uh, about 1,000 years old, originally built by those who made the effigy mounds. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of today's top stories. In light of yesterday's shooting at a Texas elementary school that killed 19 students and two teachers, our reporter Reed Kamai has been looking into how parents, teachers, and other adults can help students cope. I sense that our entire school community's hearts are, are just swollen with grief. That's Dr. Steve Salerno, superintendent of the Mount Horeb Area School District, describing the mood of the schools in his district today in the wake of the shooting yesterday at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. The shooting killed 19 students and two teachers, and it's placed school faculty and staff, along with parents, in a difficult yet familiar conundrum, how to talk to kids about this. Dr. Salerno encourages adults to reassure kids while also recognizing how they feel. The key among it is just reassure children that they're safe. Schools on balance continue to be very safe. Uh, however, we mustn't um, forget to validate the feelings of our young people. Um, they've been through a lot. Um, safety, unfortunately, has been a part of their lives um, all throughout the pandemic. And now as news events like this unfold, uh, it's, it's very difficult. And because of that, Dr. Stalerno stresses the importance of making time to talk. Uh, we need to make time to talk, answer questions honestly, and talk about how they can be part of the solution. Uh, at our high school level, for example, uh, our kids routinely, I call it save the day, with information that they provide to trusted adults that allow us to solve the little issues so that the Big issues don't seem so big. When talking with kids about incidents like these, it's important to use an age-appropriate level of detail. That's according to Ben Laxton, a counselor at Glacier Edge Elementary School in Verona. So we want to make sure that we have it, you know, appropriate when we're talking about the appropriate things, you know, um, talking more along the lines of, you know, the person who did this is no longer able to help to to hurt um, anyone is taken care of, but not talking about like what actually happened to that person. So leaving it to, you know, that person may have been arrested or may have been, um, you know, anything, but not specifically going to, you know, like this person was shot and killed by police officers. Laxton also recommends trying to meet kids where they are. You know, just kind of gauging the level of um, understanding that your kids have is really important. And then making sure that they understand the difference between reality and um, fiction, because we see a lot of things in media and things like that that are happening like this um, and understanding what they're hearing and what is actually um, truthful, you know, because there's a lot of things that kids will hear of rumors at school or rumors from their friends and things like that that might not actually be what happened. In a letter to families of students in the Verona Area School District, Superintendent Dr. Tremaine Clardy noted that counselors and social workers would be available for students to talk to. 
MMSD Superintendent Carlton D. Jenkins wrote in a statement that Madison schools also have social workers, counselors, and psychologists on hand. Yesterday's shooting came just 10 days after another mass shooting, this time at a Buffalo, New York supermarket, which killed 10 people. To date, there have been 212 mass shootings in 2022. 27 of those have been school shootings that resulted in injuries or deaths, reports NPR. That data comes from the Gun Violence Archive, an independent organization that tracks reported instances of gun violence. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. Last night, Madison Alders approved new ordinances to streamline rules for historic districts. They also approved a recycling charge and plans to add sidewalks to Lake Mendota Drive and appointed a new alder. WORT reporter Cameron Costanzo has a recap of last night's Common Council meeting. Last night, the Madison Common Council moved ahead with a plan to consolidate its rules for historic districts. The changes to the ordinance are the product of almost a decade of work from an ad hoc committee formed after disputes between developers and residents in historic districts reached ahead. The disputes were caused by vague language in the prior ordinance that led to developers making changes to the neighborhoods that residents disagreed with. Heather Bailey is the preservation planner for the city. Last night, she told the council about the goals for the new ordinance. We wanted to have consistent standards across each district because each of them were a microcosm for how they were created at a particular point in time. Um, We wanted to incorporate current preservation practices and standards, also make the ordinance easier to understand. There's a lot of language that if you're in the know, then you know how it works. We wanted to make it user-friendly for everybody. The LORC, that's the Landmarks Ordinance Review Committee, has been in the second phase of reviewing ordinances for historic districts. That's taken more than 35 committee meetings and 15 stakeholder sessions over a combined five years. Bill Connors is the executive director for Smart Growth Greater Madison, a lobbying group that represents developers. The ordinance that's proposed um, takes the separate ordinances for the five different local historic districts and melds them together into a single ordinance with common you know, standards and processes um, and definitions. And that's a, that's a good thing. That's a step in the right direction as far as we at, at Smart Growth are concerned. Connors adds that it will be easier for developers to understand what they can and can't do. City staffers will have an easier time writing reports on new applications, and the Landmarks Commission will better understand the requirements. But not everyone agrees. Critics of the proposal, including historic preservationists and residents, say the new ordinances aren't good enough, and leave it ripe for abuse from developers. The changes passed the council unanimous with two absentations. Also, at last night's council meeting, Alders finalized a special charge for recycling pickups, intended to help the city keep pace with a tight budget. Alders also voted to finalize curb, gutter, and sidewalk reconstruction plans for Lake Mendota Drive amidst dozens of public comments against the project. Lastly, the council appointed a new alder, design engineer Eric Paulson to fill the District 3 seat recently left vacant by Lindsay Lemmer. For WORT News, I'm Cameron Costanzo. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and officials are highlighting a state-run program offering resources to Wisconsin farmers to help them prioritize their mental and emotional well-being. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has this. 
From inflation to climate change, Wisconsin farmers face numerous sources of stress that can't help but affect their health. And one program is offering mental and emotional support to farm operators who need it. The Farmer Wellness Program, an initiative of the state's Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection, offers in-person and remote counseling for farmers across the state. Dan Bauer with the Wisconsin Farm Center, which administers the program, says they also have a 24-7 emergency line. So that 24-7 line is available to farmers, and really what it's designed to do is to get them through a terribly tough time. It's not for ongoing care or not for long-term treatment. In a December poll of farmers and farm workers commissioned by the American Farm Bureau Federation, more than 60% of respondents said they felt more stress in 2021 compared to the previous year. They cited financial issues, fear of losing their farms, and an uncertain future among their greatest stressors. According to a 2020 report from the National Institutes of Health, about 6.5 million rural Americans struggle with mental health issues, but counseling services tend to cluster in urban and suburban areas. Dr. Rhonda Randall with United Healthcare says technology has made inroads in improving rural access to mental health services. Tele-behavioral health has really been beneficial in helping equal out that access because now licensed mental health professionals can practice and care for people in communities that may have otherwise had a very long drive to get to see them. So think about people in rural areas. The NIH report estimates as many as 65% of non-metropolitan counties lack a psychiatrist. Bauer says DATCAP's Rural Realities podcast also can offer helpful tips to farmers looking to prioritize their mental health. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. A recent report shows that Wisconsin hospitals cost insurers some of the highest rates in the nation. WORT producer Heron Splinter spoke with a local health care executive to learn more. We're talking today about a study that came out earlier this week that finds that Wisconsin is the fourth highest in the nation for private insurance premiums, which can also get passed on to consumers. The study compared private insurance against what Medicare pays, which is often less. Healthcare is the largest cause of personal bankruptcy, even among those who have insurance. I'm speaking with Cheryl DeMars, CEO of The Alliance, a nonprofit healthcare facilitator for employers. First, I want to thank Cheryl for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about Rand Corporation, who conducted this study? Rand is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization, and this study was done with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, and also self-funded employers from across the country. I want to make sure that people understand how the healthcare marketplace works. Can you explain a little bit about that and how the alliance fits into it? Sure. Many people are familiar with a traditional insurance plan that, that they may get through their employer or buy on their own, where an insurance company is providing benefits in exchange for a monthly fixed premium. Um, that really isn't what the alliance is all about. We are a cooperative owned by employers who self-fund their benefits for their employees. And what that essentially means is they're not buying insurance from an insurance carrier per se. Instead, they're more or less acting as their own insurance company and paying for the services that their employees and family members use directly. And so what that means is 
if an employer is working with their employees to to manage their health well and creates a healthy workplace, it's helping their employees be good consumers of healthcare services, using services appropriately, and as a result, uh, is spending less on healthcare. Those savings um, benefit the company and its employees directly, instead of in a fully insured model where those savings might be absorbed by the insurance company instead. Could you explain a little bit about this study? The study focused on hospital prices, not so much insurance premiums. Of course, hospital prices will impact insurance premiums, but um, it's one step removed from the insurance premium. It's, it's focusing on what, what are we paying hospitals uh, expressed as a percent of Medicare. How does Wisconsin fall in that study? The state of Wisconsin is on the high end of what we're paying in terms of the prices for, uh, for care at hospitals. Wisconsin is the fourth highest of all the states in the RAND study um, in terms of the total prices we're paying to hospitals. And by total prices, I mean the price for both inpatient and outpatient care. And even more striking, Wisconsin is second highest in the country in terms of the prices we're paying for physicians when care is provided at a hospital. What does this mean for insurance buyers and cooperatives like yourself? Well, it really reveals what I think many of us have sensed all along, and that is that we're paying too much for hospital care. I think everyone knows that health care costs a lot. What the study that was released this week from the RAND Corporation points out is how much we're paying relative to uh, other parts of the country, other states in the country that are arguably have good health care as well. How does this change how you handle your business? Well, what this study does begins to raise the curtain on health care prices and the inexplicable variability that exists from hospital to hospital and state to state. So what we're going to be doing is taking a hard look at uh, the prices that we're paying, the partners that we're working with, and working with our, uh, the employers who own our cooperative to seek out those providers that do a good job and cost less, who are willing to charge a fair price for the care that they're providing. So it sounds like this study and the increased transparency in general makes the market for health care more competitive for hospitals. Whether information like this results in greater competition is to be determined. And the reason for that is because one of the drivers of higher prices in health care is the degree of market consolidation that exists. So in, in states, in regions where there have been a lot of mergers or, and acquisitions, or in Wisconsin where there's um, a lot of vertical integration, in other words, the physicians are employed by the hospitals and they own insurance companies, studies across the country show that where, is, where there is this level of market consolidation, uh, prices increase. So transparency alone probably isn't sufficient to bring prices down in states like Wisconsin. What do you think would do the trick? Well, I think a couple of things are necessary. In terms of market-based approaches, 
we need employers and consumers to be using doctors and hospitals that do a good job and cost less. We have to shift market share to those physicians and hospitals that are a better value. And in addition, we need lawmakers and regulators to be taking a harder look at healthcare. In a market like this, we may need legislative intervention that could look like uh, rate setting or even reevaluating the nonprofit uh, status of hospitals in order to right size what we're paying for hospital care in Wisconsin. That sounds like a, a big shift in the market. Those would be big changes for Wisconsin, yes. But what is the alternative? Um, we've been working, uh, trying to use free market principles um, for a long time. And frankly, uh, healthcare doesn't function like most other markets. Right, because patients don't often have a choice where they go. They can't just up and choose a different hospital or insurer. Well, yeah, and in our model, patients can decide where to go. Um, they can choose one hospital over another. Um, but if they're all high-priced, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily result in the same kind of competition that uh, would take place in other markets. Last we need... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm go sorry. ahead. We need... We need uh, hospitals and physicians to be competing on both price and quality, and having information to compare those two is a first step to making that happen, but alone is likely insufficient. I've been talking to Cheryl DeMars, who is CEO of The Alliance, a nonprofit healthcare facilitator for employers. We've been discussing the implications of a new study that says private insurers in Wisconsin pay the fourth most expensive rates to hospitals nationwide. Apple River Canyon is a place known mostly for its history, but in 2022, it's as relevant as it has ever been. In this episode of Parks and Landmarks, WORT contributor Sean Bull examines one of Northern Illinois' lesser-known state parks. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underappreciated outdoors. Apple River Canyon State Park is a 1,900-acre preserve in the northwest corner of Illinois. Its name provides as much description as it needs, but first-time visitors to this part of the state will still be taken back by its effortless beauty. The park offers a few trails, no electricity, and the only running water is in the river itself. Yet, Apple River Canyon's simplicity belies an important past. In this episode, we'll look back at this area's heyday and see what its evolution can teach us about a park's role today. The purposes of a state park are many. At its most lofty, a park aspires to preserve the world in its natural state, to provide a place where life can flourish unmolested by human impulses. In a more practical application, parks are a refuge not for nature, but for us, a place where we can take a beat reset and relax. In most instances, their mission serves a mix of both, and the most successful parks are both wild and accessible. For example, look at Illinois. It's no coincidence that the state's most trafficked park happens to be right in the middle, 15 minutes from two interstates that bisect the land of Lincoln. 
For people journeying across the country, Starved Rock State Park is a natural reprieve, better than any oasis you could throw over the highway. After hours or even days on the road, a little time in nature is the perfect way for the tired traveler to recharge. In this function, Apple River Canyon was the starved rock of its day, perhaps the most prominent natural attraction along one of Illinois' busiest highways. Before the Civil War, Galena, Illinois was perhaps the lead capital of America. But despite holding this distinguished title, the city wasn't the easiest to reach. I mean, any road trip before cars sounds terrible, but at this time, Galena was the western frontier, and especially hard to reach. The main way of traveling to Galena was a stagecoach that left daily from Chicago. This coach would average a breakneck five miles an hour, which meant that the one-way trip could take a whole three days. Given this leisurely pace, it was necessary that a bunch of towns formed to supply the trail. Like convenience stores and motels along a modern freeway, these towns catered to a traveler's needs whenever they might stop along the way. One such town was Millville, Illinois. Nestled along the Apple River, Millville was an ideal rest stop. The river, for the most part, is small yet swift. In this valley, the otherwise treacherous water spreads out and flattens over a wide bed of rocks. This solid foundation makes this section of the river much safer to cross, but you can imagine that driving straight through water was never a small undertaking. So many things could go catastrophically wrong, and it's helpful to have a town full of people on hand for the crossing, just in case. Of course, the people of Millville were happy to sell the travelers food or rooms for a night. As long as the stagecoaches supplied customers, the town would remain strong. When people chose to stop in Millville over another local town, I imagine they did so for more than the fresh-baked pies. The whole driftless area of northwest Illinois and southwest Wisconsin is idyllically beautiful. Ask anyone who lives within 20 miles of Viroqua, they won't shut up about it. But here, the characteristic driftless hills are cleaved in half, revealing the dramatic limestone layers beneath. If you chose to stop your stagecoach here, the background of your picnic would rival any scenery the Midwest has to offer. Of course, the stagecoach was a horrible way to travel. I already mentioned the five miles per hour of it all, but it's also worth remembering that the person riding shotgun was literally tasked with defending the coach at gunpoint. Before long, a rail line was built to connect Chicago and Galena, and it was a huge improvement. Not only could people travel between the cities faster, but the lead they mined no longer had to be shipped out on the river. As far as the miners were concerned, the railway represented winds all around. But unfortunately, that wasn't true for everyone. The new rail line was straighter than the stagecoach trail, and it skipped over some of the towns the trail had serviced. Millville was suddenly a mill, a pretty canyon, and not much else. For a while, the undercut town died a slow death. Without its economic lifeblood, the town withered. But it was an act of God, not government, that ultimately did Millville in. In 1892, torrential rains caused a dam on Clear Creek to burst. Water rushed into the Apple River, and the canyon walls prevented it from spreading out. The small, low-lying town of Millville was hit with the water's full force and obliterated. 
Though the state park was established over the same grounds on which the town stood, it shows no traces of Millville's existence. In one final blow, the town was wiped from the map. Nowadays, Apple River Canyon is no stopover. It's miles out of the way of all major routes, and though it's now much less than a day's journey away, Galena is still very much its own destination. Even in recreation, local competition now has the park pigeonholed. If you want to go boating or golfing nearby, there are artificial lakes and country clubs up the road, which provide a much more upscale outdoor experience. So the people who come to Apple River Canyon now do so with specific activities in mind. They want to hike one of the trails, or to fish for trout, or simply to sit in nature not overrun by everyone with a Yahoo Search toolbar and a 312 area code. These days, that's increasingly hard to do. In March of 2020, all events were cancelled, indoor gathering was discouraged, and everybody decided that hiking was now their new favorite thing. This has made my job a little more difficult. Years ago, when I first started writing features like this, it was easy to find underrated parks that deserved a highlight. But for the last two years, every outdoor recreation area has gotten exactly as many visitors as it deserves. I'll be interested going forward to see if COVID has permanently reawakened our collective love of the outdoors. Anecdotally, it doesn't seem like park attendance will slow anytime soon. Perhaps these conditions are perfect for a remote park like Apple River Canyon. On a nice day, it can get lively, but it's far less crowded than most parks its size. When you visit today, you're unlikely to find precious metal amongst the driftless hills of Illinois. But if you're lucky, you might find peace and quiet. At a state park in 2022, that might be the rarest prize of all. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wortfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's s-e-a-n dot b-u-l-l at w-o-r-t-f-m dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, today's warm frontal rains will at least have given your garden a well-needed quench, even if they uh, otherwise weren't too much to remark on. So far, we've picked up uh, over an inch, about 1.06 inches officially out of the Dane County Airport, which is nice, though it uh, will still leave us a fair bit short of our normal for the month, uh, given how dry we've been so far. And we're going to be warming up again, too, for the final six days of the month, so evaporation will again be on the upswing. I know it didn't seem like much of a warm front on its way in today, given how the uh, thermometer responded. We only managed to uh, get four degrees of climb in the thermometer from 54 at dawn today up to 58 currently. But the dew point temperature was on a steady upward trend, jumping from 38 degrees in the early morning hours to 57 this past hour. That actually represents a doubling of the atmospheric moisture content from 4.8 grams per kilogram to 9.6. 
And if you were measuring the temperature up above ground level, say if you were up at three or four or 5,000 feet, that jumped uh, 10 degrees, and it's the temperature up there at three or four or 5,000 feet that typically determines daytime temperatures, at least if there's sunshine and some vertical mixing. Uh, of course, we didn't see anything in the way of sun today, but tomorrow, with a little more breaking of the clouds and uh, a lot less rain, I suspect we may be, be, may be up towards 70. Well, if you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, you'll see what was already an amplified upper air pattern back on Monday blocking up and becoming even less progressive than it was, closing off the remnants of the upper trough that's been keeping us cool the past several days into a closed circulation that's now centered over about eastern Kansas. That closed low is predicted to wobble slowly east-northeastward over the coming couple of days with another surge or two of energy circulating around it and enhancing its moisture advection and uh, providing some lift. And while the short-range models differ to varying degrees with how exactly that plays out, by and large, all of them keep precipitation confined mostly to areas in southeastern Wisconsin, in addition to areas uh, further south and east from there. We will be on the cool side of that circulation over the coming days, but with warm air and upper ridging already visible on the water vapor pushing across Canada to our north and heights predicted by all the models to be rising over the coming days to our north and west. We will warm, actually, even as our winds veer north on Friday. And after our winds back southerly again Saturday, we're going to really start to warm with a secondary stronger upper ridge than building over us from the southern plains on Sunday and into next week. That'll send the jet stream with its lifting and rain-producing capabilities well north of us up into Canada. It's possible we may see some increased moisture on the lead side of that second ridge, producing some showers possibly in the Saturday night or Sunday time frame. But after that, there looks to be a consensus on the longer-range models that will be hot and humid and uh, I think mostly clear out through Wednesday or even Thursday of next week with stout upper ridging taking daytime temperatures into the upper 80s or possibly the lower 90s. So uh, get prepared for increased mosquitoes in addition to the uh, heat and moisture. But back to tonight, uh, showers will continue to lift northward through the area over the coming few hours, but they'll scatter out progressively from south to north as the warm front actually rides into the area and veers our easterly winds southerly. We do actually have one last little batch of showers. There might actually be a little bit of embedded thunder with this, the way it looks on the radar currently. Passing north-northeastward through uh, western Rock and eastern Green County, that'll move up into uh, eastern Dane and uh, adjacent counties from there over the coming hour. Otherwise, uh, most of the listening area looks clear, especially to the west and north. Southerly winds and cloud cover will prevent uh, temperatures falling much overnight. In fact, uh, temperatures will uh, hold in the 60-degree range. We're actually in the upper 50s currently, so I guess technically that would be warming up. Uh, tomorrow, skies should uh, generally remain cloudy, and passing showers are possible, especially as we get into the afternoon, and especially across the southeastern half of the listening area again. Temperatures will reach uh, 70 or so, possibly higher if we see some sun or possibly just the upper 60s. 
Winds will be a light southwesterly veering northwest and north, uh, still lightly as we get later in the day. Clouds are fairly likely to hang tough during the overnight period, though uh, north-northeasterly winds tomorrow night will be increasing up to 8 to 12 miles per hour. That will be bringing in drier air as we approach Friday morning. So temperatures will drop down into the uh, mid-50s, and I'm hoping we'll see clearing gradually work southeastward into the area and across it on Friday, allowing temperatures to reach, well, 70 or better, where uh, earlier clearing transpires to the west and north with some cooler temperatures and more cloud cover southeast. Northeasterly winds, or northerly winds, excuse me, will be up at 8 to 15 miles per hour Friday, but uh, knock off and be backing southerly as we go overnight into Saturday, allowing the temperatures to drop down into the mid-50s. And Saturday, mostly sunny skies should take us to the mid or upper 70s, with southerly winds increasing to 5 to 10 miles per hour. Skies may cloud up more later in the day or in the overnight, and passing showers are possible as we go overnight, with a low temperature in the low 60s. And Sunday, if we stay on the clearer side, I think we'll jump into the 80s, with dew points increasing to the 60s. That's where it starts to feel humid to most people. On stronger southerly winds, which will come up to 10 to 18 miles per hour, And those southerly winds will stay up through a number of the ensuing days. That'll help vertical mixing and keep the atmosphere fairly warm both day and night the way it's appearing. uh, With 90 degrees possible on each of the following three days, probably early next week. Just now down here at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 58. The dew point temperature is 57. A little bit of light rain from a low overcast up at about 400 feet the last I looked out a few minutes ago. Uh, Winds are out of the east at 6 miles per hour, and the barometer is uh, falling at 29.78 inches of mercury. We go now to May 1968, when civil rights dominated the news and an important general came to town. Here's Stu Levitan traveling through time for tonight's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, May 1968. On the 3rd, leaders of the campus groups Concerned Black People, CBP, and University Community Action Party, the UCA, present a six-part racial equity plan to University President Fred Harvey Harrington. Among other initiatives, they want courses in black history and culture, a black community center, a year's pay for professors taking leave to do civil rights activity, and that the university sell its shares in Chase Manhattan Bank to fund a black scholarship program. On the 17th, the Board of Regents directs Harrington to expand the university's aid to the disadvantage and to, quote, include as a high priority for the next budget funds to meet, quote, the problems of poverty, prejudice, and equal opportunity. Harrington projects spending $4 million on the effort from 1969 to 71. The board also creates the Martin Luther King Scholarship Fund, supported by money transferred from the Scholarship Fund of the Wisconsin Student Association, the WSA, which Harrington says the university will match. 
But that afternoon, the regents resist taking another civil rights action as demanded by a hundred or so activists from the CBP, the UCA, and the WSA. The students pack the meeting room in Van Heys Hall past capacity to demand the university sell its 3,300 shares of Chase Manhattan Bank stock, valued at $230,000, because the bank helped the apartheid government of the Union of South Africa survive a financial crisis in 1961, and they want the proceeds from the sale used for minority scholarships. As long as the university is involved with the Chase Manhattan Bank, it is the enemy of concerned black people, CBP leader Willie Edwards says, if you don't sell, we'll take further action. The regents deliberate in closed session for about 90 minutes and decline to comply. The students actively consider a hostile occupation of the room, but are dissuaded by Edwards and other black leaders who warn of the predictable adverse consequences of such an action. Instead, they go occupy the empty administration building, peacefully occupying it with up to 400 protesters until 20 after 1 Saturday morning when they peacefully depart. But about 20 minutes later, somebody tosses three Molotov cocktails through a first-floor window in historic South Hall, starting a blaze that heavily damages about 15,000 student records, melts fixtures, and causes smoke damage on all four floors of the second-oldest building on campus. University officials caution against linking the firebombing to the protest over Chase Manhattan stock. After a Monday morning rally on Library Mall, CBP leaders meet with Harrington and learn the university will agree to three of their demands, hiring a black assistant director of the minority scholarship program headed by Ruth B. Doyle, giving students an equal voice in the program's operation, and starting an orientation for black freshmen run by black students but the regents resolutely refused to reopen the question of selling the Chase stock, and the UCA's Billy Kaplan calls the concessions, quote, meaningless. Off campus, the frequent fights between blacks and whites at and around the teen dances at the Eastside Businessmen's Club on Atwood Avenue finally proved too much for Monona Police Chief Walter Kind. On the 7th, he orders the dances shut down. Things were just getting out of hand, he says. Getting things back in hand is one of the many challenges facing the first executive director of the Equal Opportunities Commission. As expected, Mayor Otto Feske on May 18th names the EOC's former chair, the Reverend James C. Wright, to the $10,000 a year post. Wright, 42, ranked first among the 40 applicants. The native South Carolinian holds a B.S. degree in psychology from the university, formerly served as associate pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church, and operated a nearby barbershop. This spring, he has been studying at the Garrett Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, and attending the Urban Training Center at the University of Chicago, focusing on police-community relations. On the 21st, Feske asks Madison's 125 employers with more than 50 employees to declare themselves equal opportunity employers by signing the Plans for Progress Alliance pledge that the EOC has sent them. In late September, EOC employment chair Merritt Norville reports that 113 of the firms have done so. On the 27th, the EOC premieres an hour-long documentary called Madison's Black Middle Class, produced by radio personality and writer George Papahambone Vukalik. Madison is ostensibly liberal, but people here are rather complacent, one interviewee says. 
the white middle-class people in Madison live in a never-never land, says another. And there's a race-based curriculum concern in the public schools. On the 20th, school superintendent Douglas Ritchie tells the Citizens Committee for the Teaching of Negro History in Madison Schools that he could, quote, identify no thread of continuity in how the schools present any non-white history and culture. The blind spots are so vast, they're appalling, says school board member and law school professor James B. McDonald, husband of the influential former secretary of the EOC, Betty McDonald. Two days later, the chair of the EOC's education committee says the racism is systemic. There does not yet exist an American history book which includes the role and impact of the American Negro in history, Betty Fay tells the school board. But it's also local. Black children, quote, are not having anywhere near an equal education, she says, due to the, quote, climate and prejudicial attitudes of white pupils and teachers who, quote, don't have the background and understanding to relate to blacks. She warns that, quote, our Negro citizens are growing very discouraged and time is running out. And in protest news, it's epithets and eggs on May 15th for Selective Service Chief General Lewis B. Hershey when the draft director arrives at the Hotel Lorraine for an Armed Forces Day talk to the downtown Rotary Club. The action by the Wisconsin Draft Resistance Union, the WDRU, draws about 300 noisy protesters, their lines stretching from West Washington Avenue to West Main Street. Most are orderly, chanting, hell no, we won't go, and other anti-draft slogans, as about 50 Madison police officers and two dozen helmeted Dane County deputies with mace and riot sticks stand by, one with a very menacing axe handle. But a handful throw about 20 eggs, coating Hershey's black station wagon and a few officers. WDRU leaders reproach the egg tossers and seize their remaining stockpile, but the public relations damage has been done. Greeted with a standing ovation by the 500 business and professional men in the Crystal Ballroom, the 74-year-old military man avoids a second confrontation afterward by slipping down a back alley and out through a dry cleaning store on the far side of the block. Hershey does not visit with his old research director from World War II, Chancellor William Sewell. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Reporters were Reed Kamai, Cameron Costanzo, and Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection. We want to extend a special welcome to our newest reporter, Tegan Carter. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Hademan was the engineer of tonight's broadcast, and Heron Splinter produced it. Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. Marcus, what is wart? Wart, W-O-R-T, correct.